Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Bo is extremely ex- expressive, if you've met Bo. Bo, I mean, uh, even driving down uh, as Christmas comes near and the Christmas lights, every single house, he wants us to look at the lights. And he just says, oh, Dad, look at the lights. And, and so I remember the 4th of July, we were, we were coming back from Senatobia, our hometown, and uh, 4th of July kind of got rained out uh, down there. And so the big fireworks show was not, uh, didn't, didn't go through. And so we're driving home, and Bo was kind of bummed that we didn't get to see the fireworks. But as we were driving up 55, uh, and this has happened a few years, we were able to see fireworks like down Riverside Drive and on the river and just even in Memphis. And so as we're driving, Bo is seeing these fireworks go up one by one, and he did the same thing with those that he does with the Christmas lights. It's as if when one is shot up, it it brings his attention, and he's, he's, I mean, he's just enamored. Dad, look! Dad, look! And just one after another. But as fast as one went up, um, it dissipated, it disappeared, and his interest kind of faded and waned. And I give that illustration uh, because there's, there's there's not a whole lot of lasting value to to fireworks. And fireworks typically are not a good monetary investment. Uh, my dad would never let us buy fireworks because uh, he said he likened it to, to lighting a $20 bill on fire and watching it burn. And so, uh, but I feel like the, in part, the evangelical church today is, is, a sim, is in a similar state, uh, is that we want good things. Uh, prayerfully, we want people to be saved. We want our churches to grow. Uh, we want personally to love the Lord more, to serve him with greater fervor, to be obedient in areas of struggle. But the means by which uh, the church culture uh, is attempting to accomplish those things, I'd liken them to fireworks, is that they're here today. And as time goes on, more new improvements, new and better things come out, promising church growth, promising evangelistic fruit, promising uh, all these things, but failing to deliver is that they, as fast as new trends come into the church to promote growth, uh, they go right back out. And in a day when bigger is better, and there are voices, again, from the the church culture telling us what our church needs to grow and be healthy, uh, I think it's it's good for us to examine what what does the Word say? What does the Word of God say? Uh, Let's look at examples in the early church. And I believe that that's what we have in Acts chapter 2, is that we don't have anything new, that there's nothing new under the sun. And the things that God has given us to promote growth and health are not new things. They're old things. Uh, They're regular, ordinary things. They're not really impressive, uh, but they're his means by which he will grow and advance his kingdom. And so what does the local church need to commit to? Well, on your outline, I want us to, uh, I'm not, again, I'm not going to spend too much time on ver- verse 42, but I want us to examine the early church, and I think we can, we can glean and learn from, from what they committed themselves to. In verse 41, we see that the Spirit of God produces the church. The Spirit produces the church. It says that souls were added. They were added into the kingdom of God, they were added into a local church. 
They were added. And the Spirit of God, after Peter preaches his famous sermon at Pentecost, the Spirit comes, the Word is preached, they are convicted by the power of the Spirit, and they are made Christians. They, they surrender their lives to Jesus, uh, and the Spirit produces the church. But after verse 41, we see that the Spirit also directs the church to certain things, that, that the things that this early church devoted themselves to is a result of a great and powerful demonstration of God's Spirit. The things that they committed themselves to were not of their own idea. They were, they were not uh, thrown together in a committee meeting. Is that The things that they committed themselves to were, was a direct result of, of the Spirit giving them direction. And we, we've been walking through those, those items on, on the first Wednesdays of every month. And the first being... The apostles' teaching, the Word of God, was, was the first mark, the first thing that these early believers devoted themselves to. It was the Word. It was the authority of the Word. And so we asked the question, well, this is before we have the rest of the New Testament. What did they devote themselves to? And it was, it was the teachings of Jesus. We see all throughout uh, the book of Acts, they, they're teaching on the Old Testament uh, so the Old Testament, uh, the, the teachings of Jesus as the disciples were in his presence, were able to learn from him for three years, but also just the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the work of Christ. Their, their teaching focused on the gospel and continuing to dive the depths of, of what the gospel was. And so they committed themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves. And that word, I mean, you kind of get an understanding of the definition in devoted, but it's is to remain steadfast under pressure and against opposition. So they, they exhausted effort in being devoted to the word of God. Uh, they were infants in the faith. And God promises, uh, or Jesus promises in John 17, 17, that the word of God is going to mature and transform the life of the believer. Uh, Peter writes, and he said, you know, he, he, he gives that illustration of new Christians being as infants, and he challenges and exhorts his readers to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it you might grow up into salvation. And so doctrine is, is extremely important in the life of the church, is that it is our supreme authority for all things pertaining to life and godliness. It, it has an effect on all us as believers. It matures us. It sanctifies us. It has an effect on the unbeliever because faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we de devote ourselves to the word. It sustains us. It, it nourishes the believer. Uh, and so we must, we must devote ourselves to, to the word uh, in the life of the church and because God has promised to bless his word right? I mean, he, he has, he's given us a promise that he will bless his word in the life of the church. And the early church believed this and they, they practiced that. And so the word is extremely important in the life of the church. But not only that, it says the fellowship. And that word is koinonia. And it's got a, it's got a wide range of meaning. Second um, Corinthians 6.14, just let me give you a few examples. Jonathan did a great job in explaining what this word means. Uh, but 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what koinonia, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? 
And so you can't have fellowship, a true union, right, with unbelievers. Paul calls, do not be unequally yoked. 1 Corinthians 1.9, you were called into the fellowship, koinonia, of his son, of Jesus. That's a, that's a spiritual union with us, with Christ, that exists right now. But Jonathan focused on 1 John, 1 John 1.3, and let me read this to you. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have koinonia, fellowship with us. And indeed, our koinonia fellowship is with the Father. So John, in 1 John, uh, in that passage, uh, 1 John 1, uh, 3, talks about how in the gospel, we are made into a, a, we are unified with God, the Father, is that we are made into a right relationship, uh, but also that we're made into a right relationship with one another, that there's a spiritual union that exists between me and Christ. And Romans chapter six says, I have died with him, been buried with him and raised to walk in newness of life. Well, the same is true of believers, that every single believer is united spiritually. That's what John says. And so when the early church devoted themselves to the, uh, to the koinonia, to the fellowship, I've come, under, uh, I've come under the persuasion that he's talking about the maintaining of unity within the body is that God has already made us tonight, believers, already made us one in the gospel. And so when they devoted themselves to the koinonia, it's, they're devoting themselves to maintain what is already true spiritually because physically and in the real world, we don't always see unity within the body, do we? We see divisions and we see disagreements and we see fallouts and we see church splits. But the early church was committed to this. They were committed to one another. Uh, they were committed to carrying out the one another's as we even just saying, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us, is that they're, with all the effort that is in them, they're, they're trying to obey what Paul wrote, to be eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. Paul does not call us to make unity. He says to maintain it because God has already produced it between us in the gospel. And so they committed themselves to that. But not only that, it says to the breaking of bread, and that can both mean the Lord's Supper, but it can also mean just meals together. And so I dealt with that uh, when I preached that sermon, both of those topics. They committed themselves to the Lord's Supper and just the importance of that in the life of the church, how it has a, just a sanctifying effect as we all come around uh, the Lord's table that has been prepared for us, his body and his blood, and we agree together when we partake and, and we say this is, this is good and this is right and, uh, and we believe this. So God gives us aids in our faith through the preaching of the word audibly, but visibly he gives us a visible aid in the Lord's Supper as we celebrate the gospel. As we remember the gospel, we're prone to forget their, their commands in the Bible to the people of God not to forget in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and, and all, really all throughout the Old Testament, do not forget the Lord who has redeemed you and who has bought you out of the slavery of Egypt. And so uh, in a similar way, in a greater way, we are to remember the gospel, to remember Jesus together. And we need that on a regular basis. And the early church saw that too. But not only that, they devoted themselves uh, to, to prayer. To prayer. Um, there are 13 accounts in the book of Acts that, that describe the people of God praying. And that's not all 
of the times that the early church prayed. That's just the amount of times that the Spirit of God saw fit to inspire that they were praying. And so it's very clear that they prayed, uh, that they saw prayer as a priority. And I believe they, they committed and devoted themselves to that because they saw themselves as weak and unable to accomplish anything. And the Bible agrees with that conviction. The Bible informs that conviction that apart from Jesus, he says in John 15, that we can do nothing. Nothing of spiritual value. I cannot save anybody. I wish I could. I cannot convict anybody. I tried that. It didn't work. Um, We cannot advance God's kingdom. We don't have that power. And so the early church saw themselves as as extremely dependent and weak. And Brian did a great job just challenging us in the area of prayer and not wanting to have any success apart from prayer and dependence on God. Uh, I met with Mike Collins this morning, and he's the man that poured into me for about two years. Uh, He discipled me. And every time we met, if I didn't pray, he would make me say, my lack of prayer is my declaration of independence from God. And so I would have to, we would have to have that conversation that I was depending way too much on my ability to do anything of, of spiritual value anywhere. And so we must devote ourselves to, to prayer. And this, this meeting is the least attended meeting, and, and not just in our church, in most churches. And what that does is that it reveals to us what we really believe, um, you know, we can acknowledge mentally all day long that we need to pray. Uh, we can acknowledge that it's God who does his work. It's God who saves. It's God who even matures us and helps us love Jesus more. But unless that acknowledgement is moved to action, I, I don't think that we can fully say that we believe it. The belief is demonstrated in action. So if we, we reveal with all of our actions, not just this, but we reveal what we believe by what we do. And the early church believed that God was in control and that he was sovereign and he had all power and all wisdom. And so uh, just a challenge to us to, to pray. And we want good things. Like surely we say we want people to be saved our family members, our children, our grandchildren. We, we want to grow and mature. We want our church, you know, we want all these things, but I hope we recognize that we have no power whatsoever to carry them out and that we would really believe that and it would be demonstrated in our dependence on God through prayer. They were dependent and you can't, you can't buy dependence, right? You can't, you can't buy that attitude. It's produced when you really believe that we're unable uh, and in the 21st century, we have so many resources at our hands. We have, we have PowerPoints and we, have, we just have a lot of good resources that, that are not inherently wrong, that they're good things that we can use and steward. But none of those things can replace dependence on God in prayer. And we have to really believe that. And I'm praying in my own life, God, help me really believe uh, that you are all powerful and I am weak. So those are the four marks And 43 through 47 is really just the explanation of those, is that we see in verses 43 through 47 that we see these principles carried out and expounded upon. And and we really see results as well, results. In Baptist life, uh, sometimes we like to talk about results. And 
Um, and what we see in verses 43 through 47 are results of the people of God committing themselves to those ordinary things, the things that are not flashy, the things that are just, the, that's why they call them the ordinary means that God uses to transform us. That, that when the people of God commit to these things, uh, the Lord blesses. Now, we can't control the Lord's blessing on a church or evangelistic fruit, but we see in the early church that there is a connection here. It says that they devoted themselves, and then verse 43, it begins, and awe came upon every soul. And so I want to look at these very briefly as we have time uh, to further expound on, on 42 and to challenge us tonight. And so we have the Spirit creating the church, producing the church. We have the Spirit directing the church to ordinary means. And now we have the Spirit demonstrated through the local church. And so as a result of their devotion to these things, the early church feared the Lord. They feared the Lord. Verse 43 said, and says, and all, all, that's the word that's communicated. It's phobos. Uh, it's where we get our word phobia. Uh, all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And so there is this healthy reverence for God that exists in the, in the early church. But it says every soul. So it's even speaking of, of unbelievers as well that God has just reached down and saved 3,000 people through the preaching of the gospel. So it was undeniable that the Lord was at work and that his, his saving hand, his, his presence was made known. And there was this, this weight that was felt by the early church. And there are similar responses as people encounter the presence of the Lord throughout the entire Bible that there's this fear that weighs down on Isaiah's heart as he, he's in the presence of, of Christ in the Old Testament. There's, there's a fear of Peter when he sees Jesus calm the wind and the waves and his power and his greatness are exercised over his creation, that Peter falls down and says, Lord, depart from me, I'm unworthy. There's a fear in, in John when he falls down like a dead man. Uh, in the presence of the Lord, in the book of Revelation. So it is a, it is a correct response to, to, and it's what is created when the presence of God is made known. And this was not a mere momentary feeling, but uh, the original gives us, it gives an indication that this was the, the continued practice. It was a continuing attitude that they were marked, early Christians were marked by a fear of the Lord. And fear of the Lord is kind of a, a thing that's missing in church language. I think when we think about God fears, we think about legalistic people or killjoys who never laugh and are, who are super serious, but that's not at all what is communicated. That it's an attitude that is informed by both the greatness and the graciousness of God. It's, it's, it's an attitude of reverence. And so it's an attitude of reverence for the Lord. It's is that people who fear the Lord have a high view of him is that people who fear God live for God, not others. People who fear God don't fear men, reverence men or worship men, is that they, and they don't live for the approval of men. 
is that God fears fear the Lord. It says that all came upon every soul. And if we want to fear God, it's and these people are fearing the Lord as a result of right their dedication to the word. If, if we want to cultivate a, a healthy reverence for God in the life of the church, we must exalt him in our praise. We must exalt him in our song. We must exalt him in our preaching. Uh, we must have a high and lofty view of God is that f- the fear of the Lord comes when we are convinced of his holiness, his justice, his wrath, his hatred towards sin, but yet at the same time know of his graciousness, his mercy, and his love in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And in the Old Testament, the fear of the Lord is almost synonymous with, or when, when they're called, when God calls them to fear the Lord, it's almost synonymous with obedience in the Old Testament. You can read that in Deuteronomy 6 um, and other examples that, that fearing the Lord means being obedient to the Lord and is seen. I guess the fear of the Lord is seen in my obedience to him. And it says signs and wonders as well. And we went through the book of Acts and some of this stuff is really hard. Uh, I had a lot of questions going through the book of Acts. Me and Brother Jim did. And uh, some, some unusual things, some things that are not uh, typical in 2017. Uh, but these signs and wonders historically, and really if you chronicle the book of Acts, you can see that signs and wonders were a gift to captivate an audience to preach the gospel. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8 says, And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. So the crowd is paying attention to what was being said by Philip. And it says, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. And so the signs and the healings and the wonders that are done throughout the book of Acts are really just to create a platform to where the the apostles can preach the gospel, can preach the gospel. And so signs and wonders were being done through God's appointed men uh, that that are not necessarily, uh, don't necessarily apply today. But I want us to, when we see signs and wonders, I want us to realize that, that salvation is the greatest wonder. I mean, that's, you know, when, when, when people are healed physically and it's given a platform for the gospel, that's telling us that the gospel and salvation is of greater wonder than, than the physical healing. Is that a true sign and wonder is the gospel. I think one author I read says that if you are a, if you love Jesus, you are a walking miracle. Is that signs and wonders are not, were not an end in and of themselves in the book of Acts, but were a means to be able to preach the gospel. And so many churches today are pursuing, they're trying to recreate and reenact Pentecost. They want the, the deep spiritual experience while ignoring the, the ordinary things that produce the most extraordinary thing, which is salvation. And so the great work of God's spirit looks like this. Like we're looking at it. We're looking at an early church that was committed to the word, committed to one another, committed to the Lord's Supper and committed to praying. That is a, the greatest demonstration of God's spirit in the life of the believer. Sometimes we downplay those things as if we have this prayer meeting. Well, you know, it's just giving. But those are the demonstrations of God's spirit. So not only that, we see as a result, they practice biblical community as well. Let's look at 
verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And I'll skip to verse 46 as it goes along with biblical community. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And so it says that they were together. They were together. They were with one another, dependent on one another. They saw one another as, even though maybe some big differences, but saw them as a vital part of of their life as a Christian. That phrase alone really says so much about the church. They were together. They were together. And it really blows our divided and our individualized understandings of church to pieces. And I want us to see in the New Testament, there is no, there is no isolated Christian. There is no lone, lone ranger Christian. That every time believers are talked about, they are together. And if you are going to be devoted to the head who is Christ, we cannot cut ourselves off from the body. All who believed were together. And we've talked a lot about community and exercising biblical community in our church. And we know that there are 59 one another's in the New Testament. And we understand the intention, like how God intended the local church to live and to act when we read of 59 one another's. He expects us to be together. And in our culture, we, we have made an idol of privacy, and myself included. Um, but God intended us to be together in fellowship and close relation. Uh, they were together in mind. They were of the same mind. Why don't we flip to Philippians chapter 2 real quick? Philippians chapter 2. So not only were they together like just in services, but they were together uh, in agreement on important things. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. And so these believers, again, were committed to one another. Um, they were of the same mind. And the, the, the Acts text says that, that they had all things in common. And so that's a kind of a unique phrase. If, if you know the makeup of this church, well, let's go back to Acts chapter 2. And let's just see the makeup. Like, who, who is he talking about here that has all things in common? And how do we interpret that? Because right now we would have to agree they probably didn't have all things in common. Acts chapter 2, verse 8, uh, verses, really verse 1 and verse, verse 8 through 11. Verse eight says, and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse nine, and he goes on to list. And I'm not gonna say all these because I'll mess up the pronunciations and I hadn't practiced them. But I mean, you see who all is representative here, who is represented, uh, the different people, uh, the different backgrounds, the different ethnicities that are, and and so they're saved. 3,000 of these people are saved and are in the same local church together. Many of these that were converted just stayed in Jerusalem. Uh, they, they, they stayed and they set up shop in Jerusalem. And so in reality, these believers didn't have much in common on a surface level. Uh, there were many represented preferences and opinions uh, and backgrounds, but, but they, were, they agreed on the most important things. They committed themselves to the, to the fellowship and we see that the gospel is on display when, 
when there's unity in the midst of diversity. And that's what we see here. We see a people who had all things in common, and it doesn't mean all, literally all things in common, but they agreed on the most important things, on the essentials. All who believed were together. They had a common Lord. They had a common salvation. Now, as new Christians in the faith, they had common desires. We want to be free from our sin. We want to pursue Christ. That's what he does in the gospel out of Ezekiel 36, that he changes that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And so he, he changes our desires. They had common desires to pursue the Lord and honor him. And they were together. The text says they were together at the temple, still attending services together, studying the word together. They were together in homes. It says that, right? Look at the text. Verse 46, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread, eating together in their homes. Breaking bread in their homes, laughing, eating, praying together at the table, discussing the word, uh, showing hospitality. That The early church understood that they needed one another and they tried to obey. Peter writes to us in 1 Peter 4, 9, show hospitality without grumbling. That they're showing hospitality to one another, allowing the, the church to step into my life by stepping into my home. And that's what you get. You step into the Ferguson house, you step into our life, and it's a little chaotic sometimes. You might get spit up on. Uh, you might, yeah, I might have to discipline Bo. I mean, we, you know, it's just, it's crazy. The house might be a mess, uh, but you step into our life. And so when we look at the early church, they were committed to this, uh, that the Christian life is, is it's not a standalone project. And isolation really is a dangerous thing for the believer, that there's, a, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors, and we have that in the local church. They were committed. We try to model that in community groups. But not only that, as a result, the early church loved one another through service and sacrifice, if you're following along in your outlines. Service and sacrifice. Verse 45 says, They were selling their possessions and belongings and distribu- distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So when Jesus speaks, he says, listen, the world's going to know that you're my disciples by one thing. What does he say? By the way you love one another. And the early church demonstrated love. Really, verse 45 could be translated, they just loved one another. Because service, biblical love is service. And the gospel changes what we love. We go from loving ourselves, preferring ourselves, loving our sin, And after we're saved, a mark of the believer is that we prefer others. That's our call, to to consider one another's needs as more important than our own, even as we sang tonight. And so they had a loose grasp on temporary things, on material things, is that in the gospel, God is recreating us into the image of Jesus, and we can't be molded into the image of Jesus clinging to our things. Many of these believers had nothing, and the body of Christ stepped in to meet those needs. It says, as any had needs. And so their generosity revealed what they really believed, that they believed God possessed their possessions, and God, that their belongings really didn't belong to them, but belonged to the Lord. They believed they had been given much in Christ, in the gospel. So how could they withhold right, needs in, to a brother or sister in Christ? And they believed that the needs of their brothers and sisters in Christ were more important there than their own needs. They believed that the, the blessings of generosity were more valuable than the temporary increase uh, 
in property value that might bring a greater profit in their life. And so they willingly, like they had a loose grip on material things and were willing to sell those things. They loved one another through self-sacrifice. And this is what a dedication to the word, prayer, fellowship, and the Lord's Supper produces. This is a result of committing ourselves to the most important thing. And it says, as any had need. That you see a sense of, like a measure of generosity in the life of these early Christians. And we have every reason to be generous because we have everything in Christ. I think about 2 Corinthians 8, 9, though Christ was rich for our sake, he became poor so that through his poverty, you might become rich. And Christ abundantly gave of himself. He self-sacrificed for our benefit. And so the people of God should mimic that in the way that we carry out life within the body. Let God loosen your grip, our grip for the material things and steward those things in serving him and serving neighbors. Next, the last one is that we see that as a result that they have an influence among lost people, influence among the lost. Verse 47 says that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. So their uniqueness as distinctly Christian, right? The fact that they were set apart, Peter calls this, you are to be holy as God is holy. You are to be set apart was the thing that gained them favor. And if you read the book of Acts, what did they do with that influence? They prayed for boldness to proclaim the gospel. Is that the early church did a pretty good job of balancing truth with love. They did not water down the truth in order to try and influence people. But at the same time, they had favor among all the people. And how does this happen? Because we know Jesus promised persecution and Paul promises persecution in 2 Timothy 3.12. All who will live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be, not might be, will be persecuted. And you can read along in the book of Acts and the disciples' experience doesn't seem very favorable as they're stoned and ran out of cities. But we must also understand the Old Testament principle in the life of Daniel and Joseph that God does give favor among your peers by the way that you act and the way that you live. And so Christian, Christians should be the best neighbors. We should be the best neighbors. We should be the best coworkers. We should be the best employees. You know, I think sometimes about my lost coworkers at personal lawn care. Like if, if all I do is just give like, keep them from, from slandering Christians and calling them hypocrites. I'll feel like I did something like, I just want them to like be a part of a conversation where somebody is calling Christians hypocrites. I want them to say, well, I had an experience at personal lawn care with a guy who didn't seem that bad. You know what I mean? And so he says that corporately, um, corporately, uh, they had favor because of how they conducted themselves. And there is a lie in every generation that we must become like the world in order to influence the world. And that has really proven disastrous in the body of Christ. You can both praise God and influence the world, those around you. That's what the text literally says. They were praising God and had favor with all the people. But we often fall off the horse on one side or the other, don't we? We have a hard time balancing this. We either err on self-righteousness and coming across as condemning, lacking compassion, or on the other side of the horse, we, we water down the gospel and we compromise, we lack conviction. So God, give us wisdom and give us balance in this. Let me ask you this question. What would your neighbors say about you, your lost neighbors? 
what kind of testimony would, would you have or your employees, your employer, are they closer to Christ or, or pushed further away? The truth in love attracts and gives favor. They were good for their city. And then lastly, we see as a result that Jesus added to their number. Jesus added to their number. The end of verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so we see this is kind of the the culmination of this picture, that as they have committed themselves to the word of God, to prayer, to, to, to the local assembly, uh, as they lived out their Christian life and loving one another, right, in those verses and loving the people around them and just living as Christians, that, that God gave growth. That as they were faithful to water and to plant and to sow the seeds of the gospel, it says that the Lord, the Lord added to their number. The Lord added to their number. And the Lord promised that he would add to our number, didn't he? In Matthew 16, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. I, Jesus, will build my church. And he did. And he is today. He is still adding to his church. But we must be convinced of a few things. We must be convinced that we are called to live out our faith. Is that we are to be Christians in our communities. We are to serve people. We are to love one another in the body of Christ. We, that includes sharing the gospel, being faithful with the opportunities and the influence that God has given us and the relationships that he has. Uh, faith comes through hearing. Hearing, it doesn't, you know, how can those believe if no one's been sent? And disciples, thinking about discipleship, um, they don't make themselves, they were active in this. So we have to be convinced that that's true. We're called to be obedient in just our daily lives as Christians, the way that we live and the things that God has called us to do. But we must also be convinced that no matter how hard our watering and our sowing, that it's God who gives the growth. That it's God who gives the growth. That, that I, and for me, that's a burden lifted. <laughs> Brother, I don't want to be responsible for giving any growth. I want to be faithful to preach, I want to be faithful to live, I want to be faithful to share, but I don't want that burden. That burden's not mine to carry. It's, it's God's, and God desires to expand his kingdom. He desires that, and that's all the more reason to be faithful. And there's, a, there's another principle as we close that, that church life, I believe, directly impacts the fruit in which we see, is that the health of a local church is a huge priority. And if the church is not healthy, we may not see kingdom fruit. Now, I'm not saying, don't hear me say that we've got to be perfect or that we've got to be here in order for God to do anything. God is not dependent on us. And all throughout history, he works in spite of us. We know that's true. He gives grace upon grace. But I think that there is a principle to be drawn that the local church was obedient and healthy. And as a result, God gave growth as he saw fit. Is that unhealthy churches don't produce healthy followers of Jesus. And if we will devote ourselves to these things, to just the ordinary means of grace, God will transform us. 
and he will bless us with kingdom fruit as he sees fit. As the, these are ordinary means that lead to extraordinary results. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.